I love that passage. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Amen. I want to bring an exhortation this morning on praise and worship. It's been a while since I remember doing that or, or someone doing that. Um, to kind of prime the pump of our thinking on praise, let me share some quotes uh, from various individuals through time. This first one is from Brother Lawrence, and he said, We should dedicate ourselves to becoming in this life the most perfect worshipers of God we can possibly be, as we hope to be through all eternity. Thomas Merton said, the great thing and the only thing is to adore and praise God. Augustine of Hippo, man's chief work is to praise God. William Temple said, worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It's the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy of that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. A.W. Tozer said, we are saved to worship God. All that Christ has done for us in the past and all that he is doing now leads to this one end. C.S. Lewis said, I was born to be free. I was, excuse me, I was not born to be free. I was born to adore and obey God. Isn't that beautiful? And the old prophet Isaiah said of the Messiah that he would give us a garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. I'm thankful for that. A garment of praise, no matter what we're going through. I remember uh, Dr. Chuck Farah bringing a bit of the prophetic to the issue of praise with three simple words. He said, Praise breaks bondages. Amen to that. Well, as we go to the scriptures, particularly the Psalms, there are some scriptures that specifically talk about praising God in the great congregation. And I want to look at a few of those. The first one is Psalm 149, verses 1 through 6. So we're looking at verses, we're going to look at four verses that talk about praising God in the great congregation. The first one is Psalm 149, verses 1 through 6. Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in his maker, let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hands. So not only in the great congregation, but on our beds as well, 
uh, we are to praise the Lord. I take that to mean let's praise Him all the time. Let's praise Him all the time. Uh, a second scripture is Psalm 107, verses 31 and 32. And this is a, a neat picture uh, of praising God in the great congregation at the seat of the elders. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. I don't know about, the, well, I, I do know about the other brothers, but I, I'll speak for myself. It brings such great joy to me as a leader of this church when I see someone praising God and thanking God in front of all of us. Then Psalm 35, uh, verses 17 and 18, talks about praising God even in the midst of adversity. This is David writing, and he says, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. Nevertheless, I will give thee thanks in the great congregation. I will praise thee among a mighty throng. Doesn't it do your heart good when you know someone is being tormented or they're in adversity, and yet they get up and they praise their living God? Isn't that beautiful? And then finally, uh, Psalm 40, verse 9 and 10. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, thou knowest I have not hidden thy righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. And I'm going to pull the title of, of the message this morning from this uh, passage. Uh, the title of the message is, I Will Not Restrain My Lips. I remember driving some time ago back from Houston with my son Nathaniel, and I think he was asleep on the back seat, and I was just praising God and, and, and um, thanking him for various things. And I remember one of those moments where I was just overwhelmed with gratefulness to God. How many of you have those moments where you're just, you're driving or you're doing something and you're just overcome with emotion and thankfulness to God? Well, at that moment, something happened to me that has only happened a couple times in my life and that is I had a vision. And the vision was of God, his big hands reaching down into my chest and cracking open my heart. And there, uh, instead of what I expected to see, which was ugliness and sin, anger and, and, and lust and selfishness and pride, what I saw was a concert of praise. And such a beautiful thing. And I began to think about verses like, He who began a work, a good work in you, will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ. For God is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. And I began to think about how that probably is true in all of our hearts, that unbeknownst to us, God is preparing us for eternity by this concert of praise and honor and glory to God going on in the innermost part of our hearts and those sinful things that we see with our natural eyes so easily are being pushed to the outer edges. And that's why we see them. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That God is at work even when we can't see it and can't sense it. So I'd like to move into the meat and potatoes of this message, if you will. And um, that is to briefly, trust me, uh, review uh, four sermons, actually, that um, I preached about a decade ago. The first one was 13 years ago, and the last one was, was eight years ago. The first message was called The Essence of Worship. And uh, this one was in 1999, and it began with this passage from John 4. This is where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and he says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know, we worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming... And now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The, the part of that passage that reached out and grabbed me was, was not to try to figure out what it means so much to worship in spirit and truth, but but the line that says, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And I was captivated by the fact that God is looking for something. He's looking for something according to, to this passage. He's searching for a people who know how to give him true worship because they are true worshipers. I uh, love being here at the church, and uh, sometimes I'll be here, and I'll, I'll be in my office, and I'll hear a clarinet somewhere in the air playing, or I'll hear this old hymn being belted out uh, across the airwaves. I'm not quite sure where it's coming from, but I'll know that Brother Jim is in the building, and uh, it just brings a joy to my face. Back when he had an office here, every once in a while the intercom on my phone would go off, the office phone, and so I'd, I'd pick it up, and there'd be jazz playing. And uh, I know that when Jim gets to heaven, one of his first questions to the Lord is going to be, where is the worship that's with the jazz, you know? Can we worship to jazz, Lord? And uh, I, love, I love the fact, but my point is I love that Jim is an example of someone who has a song on their hearts, and he's just often caught 
worshiping the Lord. And there's many of you like that, that there's something about the way you worship that just is inspirational and infectious. And so let's, let's do more of that. As I went to the Word um, to contemplate more about worship and true worship, I, I discovered that the word worship literally means to prostrate oneself. It means to bow down or to kneel or to get on your face before God. One verse that says it well is Psalm 95, 6. It says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. There's a ton of examples in scripture. I'll just read one uh, where Ezra was reading the law to the Jews who had been released from Babylonian exile. In Nehemiah 8, 6, he said, it says that Ezra blessed the Lord the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In Revelation, we read that the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. I counted uh, in this message, preparing this message so long ago, I I counted about 180 references to worship or worshiping, and about 20% of those uh, reflected this aspect of worship, of bowing down uh, before God. Worship in its most basic or biblical essence is this. It's the acknowledgement of the absolute reality of our relationship with God, that he is awesome that he is magnificent, that he is holy, unfathomable. And apart from him and his initiative of grace toward us, we are nothing. Praise is different, though. Uh, As I continued to study, I discovered that praise is not the same as worship. Uh, Certainly, praise is a type of worship, but it's also worship to give our offerings to God, isn't it? It's also really, one could argue that all of life is worship, that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God in in everything we do. But as the the scriptures um, position praise, first of all, praise is kind of a starting place as the people of God gather together. For example, think of the verse, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. So praise is kind of a a starting place. Secondly, praise is lifting up. It's exalting God and uh, extolling his name. Third, praise is a sacrifice. We bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Whereas worship is more when you're praising God, and I know you've had this experience, you're praising him, and all of a sudden, this stillness of soul enters your heart and your spirit, and you are overwhelmed with the majesty of God and the, your own insignificance. And it's a place of 
extreme uh, stillness and silence before God, where you're just in that place of recognizing the reality of the relationship between the creator and the creature. How many of you can say amen to that? There's that little bit of difference between praise and worship. Gordon had this uh, definition of praise in a paper he presented at the conclave. Um, It means to shine, to make a show, to boast, to be clamorously foolish, to rave and to celebrate. That's praise. Uh, But worship is that bowing down. So those were the kind of themes in that first message, the essence of worship. Then uh, in 2000, uh, we preached a sermon called Make His Praise Glorious. And this, this message was from Psalm 66, verses 1 through 4. And you don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. But it, it says, Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Isn't that a fantastic phrase? Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are thy works. Because of the greatness of thy power, thine enemies will even give feigned obedience to thee. All the earth will worship thee and sing praises to thee. They will sing praises to thy name. Probably the main point of this message, Make His Praise Glorious, is about coming to worship the Lord with the right motive. And uh, there's a lot of competing motives in our hearts as we come to worship the Lord. Um, My um, high school friend, Gary McCracken, was under the teaching of a man named Fred Herzog, uh, who ministered up in uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota in the 70s and 80s and 90s. I don't even know if he's still alive. But uh, Fred had a prophetic gift, and Gary was telling me that one time, you know, back in that day, everybody said, thus says the Lord. And then there'd be this pause, and then, and then the, the prophecy. But uh, on this particular occasion, Fred said, thus says the Lord. Oops, no, that was me. And how refreshing, you know, to hear a guy say, oops, no, that was me. Well, when it comes to worship, what I want to propose to you is that our number one motive in coming needs to be simply to glorify God. Simply to glorify God, that God gets his due from the great congregation. Of course we have needs. And of course we want an encounter with the living God. There's nothing wrong with that. But our highest need needs to be just to glorify God because of who he is. Because of who he is. I don't want to say, oops, sorry God, that was all about me when it comes to worship. That was about me insisting that my spiritual needs be met. That was about me demanding 
that my particular music style gets promoted that morning. That was about, about me needing to feel your presence. Psalm 115 is the antidote. It says, not to us, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory. There was uh, a pastor, many of you have heard of him, Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel. Very successful pastor, very successful church. He went out into the congregation with a microphone and he started asking people, why, you know, what do you expect out of a worship service? And uh, listen to some of the answers that people gave. He writes, almost every person expressed something different. One person wanted relief from the stress at work. Another was hoping to see God answer a prayer for a friend. In other words, each person's expectation as to what would happen during the service was born out of a personal need or desire. They saw going to church that night as a resource to help them cope with their current concerns. We learn that in spite of our efforts to give worship a particular meaning, people bring their own meanings to the service. You rascally people, you. Second, no, that's not in the quote. Second, the one expectation of the majority of people shared was for some kind of encounter with God. Beyond the program, the social interaction, the music, the message, they wanted to touch God. There's nothing wrong with that. My heart and my flesh yearn for the living God. So we're not, we're not disparaging that at all. But I want to say, in my view, while all of these reasons are good, they're not the best. The very best reason is to worship God. Where are the people who would stand up and say, what I expect to see when I come into the house of the Lord is God glorified in his house. And we'll let the chips fall where they may. We trust God to meet our needs. We trust God to bring that, his felt presence and that personal encounter. But our heart is to worship the living God for all we're worth. Anybody have a heart like that? Matt Redman wrote a song, I'm Coming Back to the Heart of Worship. Do you remember that song? Um, I guess I have a copy. Let me just read a few words of it to you. He said, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you. Aren't those great words? Secondly, in that message called Make His Praise Glorious, we talked about some of the potholes of praise, some of the traps that are easy to fall into. One of them we might call narcissistic worship. And I picked on um, Psalm 113 and compared it to a song we used to sing, I Have a Destiny. You remember that song? I have a destiny, I know I shall fulfill. I have a destiny in that city on a hill. It's not an empty wish and so on. It's a good song, but 
in Psalm 113, there are 12 references to the Lord, to God, he or his, and there's zero references to I or me. Um, in that song, I Have a Destiny, um, there were 16 I's or me's, and you don't come across the term God. You do come across the term spirit, and um, six times the word you, referencing the Lord. But what a contrast, and it, it, it led worship um, leaders in that decade, the decade of the 90s, to say, hey, we have a pronoun problem in our worship. It needs to be about God, not about I, me, and so on. We also talked about um, the copycat syndrome and how it's so tempting to go out to a worship conference and come back and try to bring some of the stuff from that conference to us and and yet, it, it just never seems to work here. And I, I, we were praying one time in my office as worship leaders, and we got a strong word that God, just like we're unique, um, and every church is unique, uh, that God wants to do something special, something uniquely his here at TCF. And we really shouldn't worry ourselves with about being like anybody else or... Uh, emulating anybody else. So that was, a, that was a freeing word. And then the Corinthian syndrome. I am of Larry, and I am of Jim, and I am of Heather, and I am of Christ. I mean, Hallett. Uh, you, know, this, you know, obviously you're going to have preferences, and that's fine, but, but try to push those out of your mind and just focus on the Lord. Amen? And just worship the Lord and drink in the words of the songs. Um, you know, the, the worship team works hard to do what we do. We, uh, we probably, the, the team as a whole probably puts in, uh, well, we practice at least a couple hours, three out of four Saturdays. Uh, well, no, that's not true. Now it's four out of four, really. And... Um, and then we practice an hour and a half before the service, so that's three and a half. And then the leader is picking songs and practicing through the week. So by the time we're up here, we, are, we, we have worked hard, uh, maybe five and in some cases as many as 15 hours for the leader have gone into um, preparing the worship set. But you know what? It's not about this group up here, is it? It's about our joint offering to God. And so if we're sitting down there, we have just as much a responsibility for the worship and the praise that's offered to God. And then we, uh, here at TCF, you may not be aware of this if you've uh, only been here 10 years or so, but, but we had to, uh, yeah, we had to, make a decision between uh, blended worship, what's called blended worship, or musical tribalism. Musical tribalism is what the worship literature calls those churches where if you want a contemporary type of worship, you come to the contemporary service. And if you want the old hymns, you come to the traditional service. Well, we've decided that the best and healthiest thing 
whether we're two, 200 or 5,000, is to have a blended worship where we're, we're asking our young people to learn the old hymns and we're asking our older people to be willing to um, enjoy, hopefully, and sing the contemporary songs. And so we can draw from everywhere. Isn't that a, a funny term, musical tribalism? I know you're like me, and you trust that if we come with the right heart and we abandon ourselves to worship, God's presence will come in. God's presence will come in. And so we don't need to worry about that. We just need to worry about how we are praising and worshiping God with our hearts and our voices. The third message was called The Privilege of Praise. And in this message, the main theme was that uh, emotion in worship is good. That emotion, you know, we're, we're not afraid of emotion here. Uh, and so we want to just say to you, you know, let, let your joy express itself. We don't want distraction, of course. I mean, um, if you don a leotard and some flags and you're running across the stage, I mean, Bill might get upset with that, but, <laughs> but um, no, actually, I would too. So we don't want a distraction, but we do want emotion. We do want joy. A.W. Tozer wrote a famous sermon called Genuine Worship Involves Feeling. And he said this, I well remember that in my early Christian fellowship there were those who warned me about the dangers of feeling. They cited the biblical example of Isaac feeling the arms of Jacob and thinking that they were Esau's. Thus the man who went by his feelings was mistaken. That sounds interesting, but it's not something on which you can build Christian doctrine. Those of us who have been blessed within our own beings by Christ would not join in any crusade uh, to follow your feelings. On the other hand, if there's no feeling at all in, your heart, in our hearts, then we're dead. If you wake up tomorrow morning and there's an absolute numbness in your right arm, no feeling at all, you will quickly dial the doctor with your good left arm. Real worship is, among other things, a feeling about the Lord, our God. It's in our hearts and we must be willing to express it in an appropriate manner. One um, psalm that I ponder sometimes is Psalm 24, where it says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then it's repeated the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And I remember reading in Isaiah 60 about the heavenly Jerusalem, that the heavenly Jerusalem's walls will be called salvation, Isaiah prophesies, and its gates will be called praise. And so you get this picture of these gates through which these triumphant Roman generals and triumphant uh, leaders would enter the city with the host of their captives in train. But this seems to be saying to me, lift up or open up 
the gates of the city that are called praise to accommodate the splendor of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In other words, if you want him to come in in a powerful way, you've got to make those gates bigger. You've got to uh, throw open the gates. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. What beautiful imagery. We talked about Psalm 22.3 that says, Thou art enthroned on the praises of Israel. And how we believe that praise promotes the presence of God. Certainly he's with us all the time. But praise seems to enthrone him in some mysterious way. And then finally we talked about how when you come into the sanctuary of God, there is a refreshing and a reorienting of your flesh and your mind, and things are in perspective again. I want to just read a bit of Psalm 73, where it's a psalm of Asaph, where he's talking about how he's envying the wicked until he comes in to the sanctuary of God. Do you remember that passage? Well, it's a beautiful passage. Here, I'll just read a little bit. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So he's kind of chomping at the bit here and complaining. You know, what am I in this for? Why am I a servant of God? It seems like I'm the one that's being hammered and disciplined. But then he says, If I had said this, I will speak this way. Behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. When I pondered to understand it, it was troublesome in my sight. And then this wonderful line, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places, thou dost cast them down to destruction. What a privilege. Every new day is an opportunity to praise the Lord. Every new day is a day where you can pull up to a stop sign and motion to the guy next to you to roll down his window. And then you can say to him, praise the Lord. God is good. Hey, anything I can pray for you about. I've never done that, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. <laughs> I will if you will. How about that? All right, the last message is, uh, was in 2004, and it's from 1 Corinthians 14, What Shall I Profit You, was the name of that message. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, this is the passage about the spiritual gifts and pursuing the spiritual gifts. Let me just read a little bit of that to you. We're nearing the end here. Pursue love yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Before I keep reading, what I want you to see in this passage is that Paul is 
radically concerned that we edify one another. He's radically concerned that when people come together to worship God, it's not just what goes on between, between God and me. He's concerned about that we edify one another. So keep that in mind as we read a few more verses. He says, um, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, for greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So the only reason prophecy is more, uh, what does he say, is, is greater than tongues is because the church is edified. But now, and then pay attention to verse 6 here. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you? Unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching. How wonderful it would be if Saturday night around 7, it was your habit to just spend a few moments asking the Lord, Lord, do you have anything for your people tomorrow through me? Lord, uh, you know, typically I would guess that most of us are so busy with our stuff Saturday night that we're not really thinking about edifying our brothers and sisters in the morning. But Paul is radically thinking about that. In Romans 1, he talks about, hey, when we get together, let's share some spiritual gifts that we can mutually edify one another, right? And then um, he says, I am in travail until Christ be formed in you. And in, in this chapter, he hammers at least seven times, do everything for edification. An example would be verse 12 of that chapter. So you also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Now abound means to be filled, teeming over, uh, to have in great quantities. Paul just hammers this point that worship is about edifying each other. I'd like to ask this question. How many of you have someone in this body, other than yourself, that you just love to watch them worship? Or you like to be near them? Because there's something about the way, there's, there's a genuineness of heart that is infectious to you. I can think of several. I won't embarrass them. But... Um, you know, that sincere heart that is worshiping God is infectious. And uh, let the infection begin. Hallelujah. So Paul had this demand for edifying each other, and he had a demand for a very virile and aggressive worship and praise. Let me read one more quote, and then we'll go to the conclusion. This is from Spurgeon. And he's talking about the, a bird, how it sings with all of its might. And uh, he says, look at the very birds on earth, how they shame us. Dear little creatures, if you watch them when they are singing, 
you will sometimes wonder how so much sound can come out of such diminutive bodies. How they throw their whole selves into the music and seem to melt away in song. How the wing vibrates, the throat pulses, and every part of their body rejoices to assist the strain. This is the way we ought to praise God. Boy, he had a way with words, didn't he? So let me just summarize here. The essence of worship is that bowing down. Praise is that entering in and lifting up. Um, we want to make his praise glorious by having that motive that first of all is, I just want to glorify God. It's not about me, it's about him getting the glory he deserves. We can avoid some of these potholes to praise and make his praise glorious, trusting that his presence will enter in and just fall and be powerful. The privilege of praise, that emotions are good and of God and praise promotes the presence of God. And then what shall I profit you? Talking about a concern for our brother and our sister to edify and to uh, send them home lifted up because of some way God has used us. So next Sunday is a fifth Sunday, and um, we are going to open it up for you to bring a word of praise or a scripture or a, a, an ode of thanksgiving or an exaltation. Um, I, I want to ask you not to go into long stories about um, yourself. I mean, that's easy to do because it, it, it's hard for people to see how God has, has so intricately worked with us. So I don't mean to disparage anybody, but we want to glorify God. We want to practice building each other up. And I, the elders had a hearty amen uh, when we talked about this Tuesday to, to especially ask some of those of you who don't get up very often to pray about um, extolling or exalting God, knowing that it will be a blessing to your brother and sister. I hope you feel like, uh, just, just put the mic out there, Jim. Just give me a chance. I hope you feel that way uh, after hearing this message. But I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to sing one. Uh, song very quickly, come worship team, as a way to respond. But then next week, uh, we'll have plenty of time to praise and honor the Lord. <laughs> I know you can stand. Would you stand? It seemed appropriate to sing uh, this song, You Are the Lord, the Famous One. Not, not us, but, but the Lord. A lot of people calling themselves famous, and it's the Lord. You are the Lord. 
the famous one, famous one. Great is your name in all the earth. The heavens declare your glorious, glorious. Great is your fame beyond the earth. Let's do that again. You are the Lord. You are the Lord, the famous one, famous one. Great is your name in all the earth. The heavens declare your glorious, glorious. Great is your fame beyond the earth for all you've done, for all you've done and yet to do with every art I'm praising you. Desire of nations and every heart, you alone are God, you alone are God, you are the Lord, the famous one, famous one, great is your name in all the earth. The heavens declare your glorious, glorious. Great is your fame beyond the earth. The morning star, the morning star is shining through. And every eye is watching you revealed by nature and miracles you are beautiful you are beautiful you are the lord you are the lord the famous one famous one Great is your name in all the earth. The heavens declare your glorious, glorious. Great is your fame beyond the earth. You are the Lord. You are the Lord, famous one. Famous one, great is your name in all the earth. Heavens declare, the heavens declare, glorious, glorious, great is your fame beyond the earth. Bless you, Lord. Lord, we declare you are the famous one. Great is your name, O Lord. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jim, for a strong word. We look forward to next Sunday.
Next Sunday, we will have an opportunity in place of the sermon. Jim will actually get up and kind of remind us of some of the things just briefly that we talked about this morning. And then the time that we would normally have uh, for the sermon, we'll have an opportunity to give testimony to God's glory. Amen. We'll give him glory. So be praying about that this week. Also remember our prayer advance. If you haven't signed up for that, I encourage you to sign up on the sign-up sheet out there. Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being together. We thank you for the privilege of praise, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of glorifying your name. Pray that you put in our hearts this week, Father, the things about which we should glorify you and want to glorify you among our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. We trust that you will lead and guide all that takes place in our service next week. We thank you again, Lord, for bringing us together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're dismissed. depths of the sea, from the heights of the heavens.